You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Okay, my guest on the Freedom Pack podcast today is one of my favorite podcasters of all time, Josh Epps. Josh, how are you, my friend? What a delightful introduction. I'm very well. How are you? I'm so good. Well, it's 7 a.m. in the morning for me, and uh, what a way to start the day. <laughs> Fantastic way for you to start the day. I've already done my day. I can tell you um, it's a, it's an okay day today that you can expect, uh, having already lived it yeah. in Australia. I wouldn't say it's uh, – I'd give it about a 7 out of 10, so you got that to look forward to. I certainly look forward to it. Uh, um, there's quite a lot I want to ask you about. As as I mentioned there, you're one of my one of my favorite um, podcasters and hosts. And there's a lot I want to speak to you about in terms of you know this world of, of journalism and, and and hosting and interviewing. Uh, I guess the best place to start is I'd love to know your process for how you navigate this. Very delicate balance between providing a platform for diverse perspectives because I've noticed that that you and I have shared many a guest um, on both our podcasts. How you balance providing that platform for diverse perspectives whilst ensuring, you know, responsible journalism, whilst keeping your journalistic integrity, whilst maybe sometimes speaking to guests that you know may be controversial or may even have potentially harmful views how do you strike that balance i mean it's interesting what i'd be interested to know why you say i'm one of your favorite podcasters like what is it exactly um i guess well i started listening to you um back when you had we the people live and um you had a conversation I think it was like episode 50-something, where it was you, Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, and Hannibal uh, Barres, I think it's Yeah, was. Hannibal Barres. Yeah, and that was iconic. That was amazing, wasn't it? That was And, and it kind of went off the rails because Sam, that was a great, a great time when I had just sort of come into the friendship group of Joe Rogan. I was, I was living in New York. So for people who don't know me, I spent most of my professional life in New York City and uh, helped to found and become a founding producer and host on HuffPost Live, which was the Huffington Post, back when the Huffington Post was like the most read online-only news source in the world and was like one of the biggest blogs in the world and had billions of eyeballs every day. They tried to do a kind of a counterpoint to network television and have like conversations. There was there was sort of like a, if an alien came down to planet Earth and wanted to have conversations about things that are going on in the world, what would what would they create? Like if they knew nothing about the history of broadcasting, no one would say, I know what we should do. We should get a middle-aged white guy to talk at us for half an hour on the, on the TV news and then say, that's the way it is. And then we, we'd all go away and for the remaining 23 and a half hours of the day with no, no connection to the news. This was in 2012, I guess. So like social media was just becoming a thing. Conversations were becoming more participatory, more interactive. And so we came together and were like, well, let's have a 12-hour-a-day streaming talk network where newsmakers and celebrities can come together and actually speak to viewers. And we can, we can audition viewers to, to come on the show. They can parachute in. They can send messages in real time in a kind of early version of uh, a chat, you know, an interactive chat. And... That was fantastic. And for about four or five years, it was it was a very, very popular thing. And all of the biggest celebrities and newsmakers came onto it. And then the, the wheels sort of started falling off it after Facebook um, really lent heavily into the video space. And you started getting Instagram and then TikTok and things like that. And nobody, they realized nobody really wants to sit down and watch a dedicated app or a dedicated website because they can get so many conversations from so many different places. And during that time, 
I sort of thought, well, in addition to that, why don't I just have some fun getting people who I really like to have conversations in a bar in Brooklyn every week and talk about the news? And that became the, com- the podcast that you're talking about, which no longer exists, We The People Live. And for one episode of that, after I'd been on Joe Rogan's show a few times, I had I had, had this run-in on HuffPost Live with a uh, an activist, a woman of colour, who had mm, raised some objections to Stephen Colbert's show and was very censorious about trying to get Stephen Colbert cancelled. He was on Comedy Central at the time. He was doing his Colbert Rapport shows before the Late Show, uh, before he got the Late Show. And my run-in with her kind of went viral. It was like one of those one of those early moments of cancel culture that swept across the internet and social media in the United States in probably 2014. And Joe Rogan saw it, talked about it on his show. Uh, I hit him up on Twitter, and uh, he invited me on the on the show. And I've subsequently done his show seven times. And in between a couple of those occasions. Uh, I had befriended Sam Harris and I sort of said, I'd love you to come on the show. And and we were looking just for actually a place to record in Los Angeles. And so I hit up Joe and I was like, can we just use your studio after one of your <laughs> one of your interviews? And he was like, sure, come on by and I, I'll be on the show as well if you want. I was like, that, that sounds great. Joe Rogan, Sam Harris and me. And the episode of the Joe Rogan show that he'd done immediately before I showed up at his studio was with Hannibal Burris, the comedian, black comedian. And they'd been drinking and they'd been getting stuck into the whiskey. And so Joe was like, well, why don't you just stick around for this this other other dude's, this Aussie dude's podcast as well. And (laughs) Sam Harris, God bless him, started talking about race in a way that uh, was very data-driven and very kind of brain-in-a-jar and very uh, unheated and intentionally talking about kind of racial encounters with police and the statistics of police violence against blacks versus whites in the same way that he would talk about it if there was no African-American in the room. And Hannibal took some offense at this and there ensued a a kind of moment of, uh, I suppose, passion versus reason you might say, uh, the episode became big and controversial and probably exemplifies, Lewis, your, I mean, the reason I ask why you, you know, what it, why you say that you like me as a podcaster is I, I suppose I'm trying to isolate those moments where you do have to do a lot of tap dancing and a lot of juggling and that sort of set you apart from the pack. And I, I mean, this is all a long-winded way of getting back to your question about how do you balance controversialness with reasonableness. I mean, I think you just, I think I just always try to remain tethered to the bullshit detector in my gut so that I can always call somebody out and not let them get away with things. And I mean, that was an example of a moment where you just sort of have to remain grounded and cling on and roll with the punches. I mean, it's a bit like a martial art or something like you can't, you can't resist where the conversation is going, so you have to roll with it and just keep trying to grapple your way into finding some purchase on the person who you're wrestling with. And, um, yeah, I think as long as you can do that and as long as you can listen to the little voice inside you that whispers when something is slightly off, then you can then you can produce something of value. Yeah, and you touched on it there. Another reason that I've always been a big fan of yours is that you're episodes and and your work's always been baked in in reason rather than um rather than emotion i would say and there was there was one episode in particular that i re- i used to listen to quite a lot uh of yours doesn't exist anymore i th- don't think so i can't find it so i can't listen to it but i used to listen to it a lot back in the day you did this episode of we the people live it was a solo episode where you talked about gun control mm. uh, in america but you did it through the lens of of how it worked in in australia um and i remember at the time i i, I wasn't a pod didn't do podcasts back then but i remember thinking if i was to ever you know, podcast and talk about topics like this, 
this is the sort of perfect example of how I would like to handle it and sort of as I mentioned they just bake everything in reason and perspective rather than just speaking from heart that's great. I mean, that's very that's a that's a very touching thing to hear. You'll be pleased to know that that episode has been re-released uh, as an oh, episode wow. as a bonus episode of Uncomfortable Conversations. So I'm just looking it up here. We actually re-released it as episode ten, so 27th of March, 2021. If people want to go back through the archive of Uncomfortable Conversations, uh, it's not a premium episode. It's free. It has a little preamble by me, and uh, you know, sadly, the issue of guns in America is one that keeps coming up so there's always going to be a reason to re-release that episode but yeah that was that was just uh that just came out of a desire to cut through the sort of the silos the the ideological silos like i feel almost driven or obligated to use whatever intellect i have and whatever humor i have and whatever satirical sensibility i have to try to shatter people's um, easy preconceptions. I mean, if there's just one thing I hate, it's groupthink and kind of faith-based reasoning that doesn't really rely on facts, but is just kind of inherited assumptions. I just think the world would be so much of a better place if we could talk to each other in as generous a way as possible to towards ideas that we disagree with. Uh, you know, if we could talk to each other outside of echo chambers and ideological silos. And guns is just one area where non-Americans in particular just do not understand what the hell America is doing with guns. And most Americans are either totally jaded or captured by some sort of NRA, you know, either they either they want gun law reform and they're jaded or they don't want gun law reform because they're fundamentally misunderstanding what it would mean and they're thinking that it would mean a removal of all guns or removing the Second Amendment or something. And I just wanted to wrestle through in real time, in my own brain, these contradictions as as someone who came from a country that had done pretty much more than any other country to do a U-turn on its gun laws after there was a mass shooting in the 1990s when Australia introduced massive uh, firearm reforms. I had that experience and then I had the experience of having lived in the United States and I felt like with one foot in each country, I was kind of capable of trying to articulate to each side what the other side's perspective was with some clarity. And I think the more we can do that, the more, put it this way, if we can't do that, if we fail to talk to people who disagree with us in ways that resonate with them and that they feel make sense of their own side... We're just never going to be able to resolve the big problems that face humankind, whether that's climate chaos or discrimination or, you know, racial animus or whatever it is that you care about in order to resolve it. It's just not good enough to say rah, 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 and to take to the streets and throw garbage bins through storefronts like that ultimately is not going to, it's not going to persuade anyone. Uh, you might be able to force people to do your bidding in some kind of totalitarian ejaculation of like of, of mayhem, but ultimately, if you want a democratic solution to problems, then you have to be good at persuasion, and you can't be good at persuasion unless you understand what your opponent thinks. So I sort of regard my whole mission in the media as being, without being too serious about things, as being like a whimsical attempt to to bridge whatever divides and blind spots we we suffer from. It's extremely interesting, and you know we mentioned there about these these iconic debates uh, with with Sam Harris and, and Hannibal, and I think at the time you were using the hashtag um, make make debates healthy again, and yeah, you know there's there's been other countless examples of you debating these really you know hot topics. I think even on Joe Rogan alone, you've had debates about you know abortion and, and, and vaccines and these really you know divisive topics. But you do so in a way that it's it's really it's really an effective conversation. I think I heard someone on Reddit describe um, your last conversation with Joe Rogan as sort of the, the the best example of having a debate without ending up shouting at each other or just shouting to avoid. I mm. wonder if you could give people your sort of advice or tips for going into conversations or going into debates with people. And getting the most effective outcome rather than it turning into a into a conflict. I mean, I do fear that part of this is just temperamental. That like I'm just temperamentally quite cheerful. 
Uh, and so I don't tend to get my hackles up when someone says something that I think is wrong. Um, you know, the, the moment that you're talking about, if people don't know what you're talking about, they may remember that at the beginning of 2022, I guess, there was this whole uh, should Joe Rogan be kicked off Spotify kind of moment and Neil Young, the musician, and a few other musicians threatened to pull their music off, or maybe did pull their music off Spotify because Joe was accused of uh, spreading vaccine misinformation and doing interviews with uh, people who were very much contrarians on COVID. And I was on his show for the seventh time, as I said, and vaccines came up and we had this brief exchange. I didn't really think much of it at the time, but it ended up going viral and it went on CNN and it was all over the world and it was published in the tabloids and everything. And it was just this moment where he had claimed that there were heart conditions, that there was myocarditis, this, this heart inflammation that uh, that occurred because of vaccines, which is true. Um, some of the mRNA vaccines uh, like Pfizer and Moderna, uh, one of the side effects uh, can be heart inflammation, especially in males in their uh, younger males in their 20s and 30s mostly. Uh, I pointed out that that's, that's true, but that uh, all of the cardiac experts say that the risk of getting COVID is worse than that. So the, the heart, both the, the prevalence and also the severity of heart um, issues as a result of, get, of getting a fully-fledged, full-blown case of COVID uh, are worse than um, the risk from getting the vaccine. He said he didn't think that was true. I laughed and said, I think it is. He got his sidekick, Jamie, uh, to look it up in real time. And the article that they found uh, vindicated me, not him. So there, it was a very easy, splashy, clickbaity headline for newspapers to write, like, you know, Rogan gets fact-checked and called out in real time by Australian journalists, that kind of thing, which I didn't really approve of and I didn't like. I subsequently went on television shows in Australia and wrote a piece in the Murdoch newspaper in Australia defending Joe and saying I didn't think this was an instance of like him being owned in some way. He does three hours of broadcasting several times a week. He says a lot of things. He encounters a lot of different ideas. Uh, he can't be right all the time. He responded to the fact that he wasn't right there uh, with generosity and a little bit of skepti dose of skepticism, which he's allowed to air. You know, it's that's his show. So for me, I mean... What was remarkable to me about that was just what it says about all of his other guests, that they're such, pardon the term, pussies, that they can't stand up to him in even the most minor and, and like, affable way. All I was doing was defending a thing that I, that I believed to be true that turns out to have been true, and I just pushed back maybe two or three times and said, no, I don't think so, Joe. Like, the fact that that was newsworthy is is incredible. I mean, people just have to grow a pair, ultimately. It's like, who cares? I mean, I, I don't know what to say to people who find it impossible to push back against someone they disagree with without getting angry, because that's not the way to persuade a person. And shoving facts in their face and getting starting to wag your finger and getting sanctimonious about them being wrong is certainly not the way. But simply politely and firmly standing your ground I mean, it's amazing to me that more people don't do that. Maybe they're intimidated by Rogan's, you know, celebrity and by being in his zone. But I, I think there just has to be more, more affable disagreement, more conciliatory pushback, more of a bullshit detector going off in people's heads and then being willing to stand up for themselves. I mean, this is certainly the case when it comes to like cancel culture and you know, whatever we talk, whatever we mean when we talk about wokeism. But like, if there's a, you know, if there are people mouthing kind of progressive platitudes that you think are inane, too many people are just sort of cowed into going along with it. It's you're perfectly entitled to pipe up and articulate the point of view of what may be a silent majority of people in saying, "Why are we doing? Why are you doing this? Like, what? It, what is? Do you really believe that?" Or, um. So I, I don't I don't have a huge amount to of advice to give other than be as generous as possible to the other person's opinion and correct them with goodwill. 
as I mentioned, that we've shared um, quite a lot of similar guests. I had a quick scroll before we came on, and you know, I just saw a couple of names instantly that that, I, that I've also interviewed in recent times, and it got me thinking. You know, I know your conversation, uh, your podcast is you know all about uncomfortable conversations, and you know, speaking to people with with diverse perspectives. And is there anyone? you feel shouldn't be allowed a platform who you would never interview or as long as there is that um, sort of scope for pushback, do you think that, you know, that, that that boundary can be pushed? Yeah, there are definitely people I wouldn't interview. I mean, there are a lot of people who just don't have anything interesting to say, um, <laughs> right? You know, so a lot of neo-Nazis, for example, I just don't think would be that interesting. Uh, if they were reflective, if they were reformed neo-Nazis, or if they were, I mean, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, like, because I would interview Hitler. I mean, if you could bring back Hitler or Goebbels, right? I mean, that would be fascinating to try to pick their brains, uh, as long as they didn't just filibuster the whole time, to try to understand what's really going on. Uh, that would be interesting. But yeah, so people who are rigidly dogmatic, who I don't think there's any way of getting through to or of really them saying anything interesting either because they're just they're fun they're dumb fundamentalists that that would be a person i wouldn't speak to and i suppose people who are obsessive about some particular i don't want to say conspiracy theory but let's say field of interest that i don't share that i basically disagree with them on the fundamentals of i would not uh, I would not interview because then it just becomes a case of chasing your tail with a whole, you know, area that I'm not an expert in. So, you know, I wouldn't interview a 9-11 truther because if they've devoted the past 22 years to understanding why 9-11 was an inside job and why the planes didn't actually hit those buildings and they were brought down by controlled demolitions, then they're going to have a lot of nonsense at their fingertips that I don't know how to counter, right? I mean, I haven't spent the past 22 years studying the structural engineering of the Twin Towers. I have a, a kind of a meta assumption that it's uh, that there are just too many unlikely things that I would have to believe for it to have been a conspiracy. And there, it's just implausible to me sociologically that everybody who was involved in the conspiracy would have been able to keep, be kept quiet. So... Uh, you know, it's it, the whole thing. I, I don't even want to sort of enter the territory of what the melting point of steel is. You know, so I wouldn't interview. <laughs> I wouldn't interview someone there because they're just going to know a lot more about like where the stairwells were located in Tower Seven, and I'm not going to be able to pull them back on it. So I'm interested in ideas, and I'm less interested in, I suppose, claims. Hmm. In a world now where information is readily accessible you know through infinite digital platforms um and there seems to be this sort of public distrust towards uh mainstream media uh, in the last couple of years how do you think that you know mainstream media outlets work to sort of regain public trust and and combat this sort of fake news approach people have um, towards any sort of mainstream media. I know just through the conversations I have with, with the people around me, a lot of people now say that they they don't trust mainstream media for their news and, and they look for, you know, sources online or podcasts. How do sort of mainstream media start to swing that dial back the other way? Or can they? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big problem that is, that depends a lot on where you are. Uh, the United mm -hmm. States is particularly screwed in this regard because they don't have a good public broadcasting uh, tradition or, or, or funding model. Uh, so unlike the UK and Australia and Canada, where you have public broadcasters that are the main, you know, sources of news for most of the population and where there is a strong tradition of journalistic integrity that is separated from governmental interference, uh, ideally in principle, and separated from corporate interference as well. So I'm talking about the BBC, the CBC in Canada and the ABC in Australia. The, you know, the Americans are really left to the whims of a fairly corruptible, clickbaity news environment. Now, there are some standout examples. Uh, the New York Times, you know, still does great investigative journalism. 
Uh, the Wall Street Journal still does that as well. They're, they're on opposite sides of the ideological spectrum, but their newsrooms are still exemplary. Um, you know, there's the New Yorker and there are places like the Atlantic and, and so on. Uh, in Australia, I sort of feel like, and you know, the same rule would go for the BBC and the, the CBC, I feel like there's a, a real job for the public broadcasters to do to try to assess fairly the stories that people feel they're not giving enough attention to. And this is something that I try to do every day on my ABC Radio Sydney show, which is a daily three-hour talkback radio show. Um, you know, I was the only person on the network to do a story about concerns that psychiatrists had about gender-affirming care for children who had gender dysphoria, for example, when the Tavistock Clinic in the UK closed down. Uh, I was the only person to do a story with a, a former head of the Australian Medical Association when she came out sounding the alarm about vaccine side effects and uh, those heart conditions. I mean, there are these, we all know these stories that the mainstream media has kind of had a groupthink on and that has alienated people into seeking answers from alternative media. Uh, you know, whether or not you should or shouldn't be wearing masks, whether or not the virus might have come from a lab. Uh, there are all there are these sorts of things where there can there can be sometimes from the mainstream media this sort of smug, cliquey uh, attitude that we that these aren't stories that we need to cover, and people feel aggrieved about that. And I think it's natural for people to say, "Well, hang on, don't just don't just sweep it under the carpet and expect me to not notice that you know that this is happening." Like I can see, I have eyes, so we need to sort of talk about it. And I think the mainstream media, like it's a it's a big catch-all term, but the good mainstream media, the you know the public broadcasters and those publications that I just mentioned in the United States, it's incumbent upon us to to make sure that we do explore those areas and we don't just sort of scoff and roll our eyes when a colleague pitches them because oh that's the kind of thing that you know a Joe Rogan would be talking about. Well, if it's the kind of thing that a Joe Rogan would be talking about, it's probably worth our talking about it, whether it is to condone it or debunk it because tens of millions of people are thinking about it if Joe's talking about it too. So like, I guess my message to fellow broadcasters and journalists is like, get our heads out of our asses a little bit and, and, uh, talk about what people are talking about. Yeah. I was actually thinking about that this morning in that, do you think that sort of bigger media companies need to start talking about, you know, culture war issues, for example, to almost prevent people from, seeking them out anyway from sources who may not be able to handle them responsibly i mean if if you know places like the bbc aren't willing to have these conversations as you mentioned people want to talk about them they're going to go out of their way to find them and i assume that's how they end up you know watching gb news i think yeah in the uk and i mean it depends on the issue depends on the issue it's you know there are very easy culture war stories to keep beating up on you know like there are you can be a you can be a Piers Morgan all you want and sort of cherry pick culture war stories that are going to inflame uh, people and make you know make the left seem absolutely crazy. I, I think it's also our job not to do that. It's our job not to uh, play into a narrative of uh, woke progressives gone mad. Uh, I don't want to do that. Uh, but I think once there's a story that actually does have some purchase. Uh, you know, like the question of whether or not uh, children should be being taught that there's no such thing as gender and sex and that if they feel a little bit like a boy and a little bit like a girl, then they're probably on the on the gender spectrum. Like whether or not that kind of ideological gender position is something that we want taught in schools and whether we want, from a therapeutic point of view, a clinical point of view, to take the attitude that had been taken in some countries, including the UK, and the US and to some extent Australia, that any adolescent presenting with gender dysphoria had to receive affirming care and that any questions that a therapist might ask about whether or not there are any underlying other mental health issues going on like depression or anxiety or autism, that that, that line of questioning is inherently transphobic. Uh, you know, conversations around this sort of stuff should not be as taboo as they have been and should not be as sidelined as they have been by mainstream media outlets who simply chant, 
trans women are women uh, as if that's the end of the story and JK Rowling is a bigot. Uh, you know, that's that's not the end of the story. It's, that's not good enough. That's not That shouldn't be good enough for any self-respecting intellectual or self-respecting investigative journalist. Uh, you know, our culture deserves better. So should we start talking about culture war issues for the sake of talking about culture war issues? No, but you know, you have to use your own sense of integrity about is there a there there? And if there's a there there, talk about it. Another another thing that comes to mind is that obviously with the rise of, you know, things like TikTok, Instagram, uh, YouTube, just growing, growing all the time, it's given the ability to, you know, the everyday person to directly influence public opinion to some extent. I mean, there are 20 second TikTok videos that reach 10 times more than the BBC can on a, you know, on a given day. Mm. So how can traditional journalism coexist with this sort of newfound citizen journalism? How do they sort of combat and, and sort of exist together? And sort of what are the what are the risks or the benefits do you see to this citizen journalism that you know you see on TikTok, YouTube? Is that a good thing to have, or is it a dangerous thing? Well, I mean, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have been much more in the camp of this is a good thing because it democratizes information and it takes uh, information out of the hands of the elite and puts it in the hands of the people. I now think that's pretty much a bullshit argument that gets pushed by social media giants whose whose hands are act- whose, whose thumbs are actually on the scales of this stuff. And I would bu- I would buy that argument if social media algorithms didn't exist and if social media platforms did what they did when Facebook was first created which was it simply showed you a reverse chronological list of what people you follow uh, or your friends with, rather, are saying, right? There was no prioritization. There was no, there was no finger on the scales trying to favor some content over another. Uh, and you could actually get to the, you know, get to the bottom of your Facebook page. It sounds weird now, but like before yeah, yeah. mobile, you, you went to a computer, you typed in www.facebook.com and you scrolled down through a reverse chronology of all of your friends' posts. And then it ended, like you got to the bottom of it. Then they invented the infinite scroll, which means it would just keep populating with more and more stuff. And if you got to the, the end of basically, they would just drag, dredge up older stuff or more irrelevant stuff. Uh, so it would keep on going forever. They introduced the like button, which I think was a, a turning point for civilization because it was the beginning of algorithms that would encourage engagement. So liking, sharing, and commenting on posts. And then all of a sudden, there becomes an incentive for the social media company to start selecting posts that they think you're going to engage with more than others. So it's no longer the case Mm -hmm. that you're simply seeing the most recent thing at the top of your feed. You're now seeing the most clicky, sticky, dopamine-inducing, sexy uh, junk food, like intellectual junk food at the top of your feed, the stuff that's going to entice you the most, the lollies. And the way to entice human beings, we are primates, there's only really two ways. You can either reinforce what we already believe so that we feel like we're at a sports team and our team is winning, or you can scare us, you can scare the shit out of us and and demonize what our opponents think. And that has the same effect as slowing down on the highway when there's a car crash on the side of the road. So like everything gets nudged slightly towards being either a car crash or a sporting game where your team is winning or losing. And so that is why you're seeing the TikTok video that has 10 times as many views as the BBC. Of course you're seeing that. Of course you are. The algorithm puts it in front of you because there's something about it that is arousing in a purely physiological way that that gets you going, that is stimulating. Now, that might be completely harmless, but the proportion of those things that are harmless is less than the proportion of overall information in the world that's harmless. That, you know, these are much more likely to be harmful. They're much more likely to be extremifying examples of content than the judicious hand of the journalist. So 
I'm very worried about what happens when algorithms meet artificial intelligence and artificially, you know, when it's when you no longer have to just have actual videos of Kim Kardashian, but you have videos of Kim Kardashian that are produced by artificially intelligent systems that can tailor themselves exactly to what's clicky and what's sexy and that can A, B, test it against people just like you who have tended to hover over exactly the same kinds of videos that you have. Uh, and so you're getting exactly what pushes your buttons. Uh, I don't, I don't see a very positive future there. Uh, and that's a whole different question from whether or not journalism still has utility. I'm pretty optimistic about journalism. I think no one, no, no teeny bopper on TikTok can do investigative journalism and they can't even probably really provide great, uh, an analysis of what's going on in the world. So like the success, you know, a few, few years ago, five, eight years ago, there were a lot of, there's a lot of talk about like the New York times failing and these newspapers having no future because what future could they possibly have in a world where everything is free on social media? And the fact is they're doing really well and they're succeeding largely because they have good analysis and this isn't to say they don't have blind spots and they don't have groupthink and that they, you know, they shouldn't have done a better job on this particular story or that particular issue. But broadly, they provide useful context and investigation that non-traditional journalistic sources just just can't. They're not rigorous enough. So, I mean, that's the state of play as I see it. That's really interesting, especially on AI. I wonder what you think of, sort of the future of journalism and AI in, or just sort of broadcasting, podcasting, in the sense that we're getting to a place now where if I had... Uh, someone on my podcast later today, say it was Sam Harris, I could go on a sort of uh, AGI and say, write me five really engaging or controversial questions to ask Sam Harris that will spark a lot of public interest. And it'll give me, it'll just generate me five questions. I could take those questions, I could say, with these questions, write me five uh, YouTube um YouTube video titles that are, you know, extremely clickable. I could take those titles, I could go to a, an AI image generator and say, generate me a thumbnail for each of these titles that'll really entice people to click on the video. And I can almost sort of just generate a lot of the, the, the hard work and just outsource it to AI. And I just imagine, you know, as the years go on, that's just going to become, you know, better and better and better at doing these things. How do you see journalists and journalism sort of coexisting with the capability of AI in that regard? I mean, in terms of clickability, it's all very well for you to have an AI that creates the most clicky headline, but that only gives you an yeah. advantage for three seconds before everyone else in the world also has that AI, right? And then, yeah. then the clickability becomes relative. So I don't see a huge advantage there that AI can mm. can offer uh, once it becomes ubiquitous. The five questions for Sam Harris, sure, yeah, I, I mean that can so AI will be able to work as a personal assistant essentially, but there's nothing that's going to be able to re replace the the sparring match that Hannibal Burris and Joe Rogan and Sam Harris and I had, right? I mean. At some point, I'm sure you could have a, an interlocutor who's who is an artificial intelligence, a computer that would have uh, a conversation like that. I don't see what the use of that is. I don't see what the advantage of that is over a human being. So I just don't think it's ever going to be as interesting as what we do. And I don't think people are going to want to hear it as much as they want to hear people. I think the big change for journalism will be that the bread and butter uh, of journalism, which is kind of reporting, will increasingly be overtaken by artificial intelligence. That's probably the most immediate financial concern that, you know, a story about the debt ceiling or a car crash or a, a train derailment really doesn't need to be written by a human being anymore and very soon won't need to be. So what happens when m all of the sort of, you know, news parts of the newspaper are written by computers. And the only thing that people have to do is deeply researched uh, on the ground investigative reporting and opinion and analysis. And even much opinion and analysis really could be done by AI, unless it's particularly interesting and innovative, which most of it's not.
as we uh, start to, to wind down, I'd like to sort of just take the conversation somewhere else for a moment um, away from journalism. And I, it was because I watched a very moving piece uh, on YouTube of, of you and your father uh, discussing Alzheimer's disease. Mm. It's, I know firsthand, it's truly one of the most heartbreaking diseases there is. Um, how are you, how has it been navigating that and what what has that sort of journey been like for you? It's a crazy ride, uh, Alzheimer's or dementia. So to give people an update, my dad is a, a well known actor in Australia. So in the eighties, he was in a, in Australia's most popular sitcom called Mother and Son, uh, and uh, was a theatre actor for forty fifty years for um, you know a long time, and very well respected. And uh, got diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I guess, in 2015, maybe. Uh, and still lives at home with my mum, but has, but is at a point now. And still, like, he's at that point where he still knows me and recognises me and can contribute somewhat to conversations. But it's a really surreal experience to be a frog in boiling, you know, in the, in the heating water and seeing yeah. this transition happened because he was such a gregarious and outgoing and joke telling and funny and kind of like metaphorically tap dancing person who the moment you he walked into a room like that room was completely different he was a true showman and to see that atrophy and the just the the devastating toll that time takes i guess really dementia is just sort of a way of accelerating time's toll I mean, that's what it feels like. It just feels like a speeding up of the natural uh, atrophying that happens with time anyway. And I, I think it's probably too early to be able to answer this question with any great insight. I mean, you probably have to ask me after he dies someday when I can look back on the whole journey. Like, I'm too close to it at the moment. I don't go through life yeah. with a daily sense of grief about it because he's still here. But... um I do go through, I do just, uh, yeah, I, exactly. I mean, my, I guess my, my main cons- concerns are the much more prosaic and boring ones of like what happens at the next step of his evolution and how do I make sure that my mother is taken care of adequately and, you know, doesn't ha- isn't in too much kind of stress and strain. Uh, you know, how do I make sure that financial things are taken care of and, you know, whatever legal stuff has to be taken care of is taken care of. Like that's all the kind of boring nonsense of dealing with aging parents. Um, the specifics of what dementia is like is a story yet to be written. Mm. You mentioned there that your, your father was a, you know, a, a legend of his industry. What, I wonder what effect he had on you um in your professional career not that you you know followed in his footsteps exactly but you know what effect did he have on you know the the professional you became i mean a huge amount uh his i mean largely largely i think because he was such an armchair intellectual and uh you know dinners family dinners were always a a boisterous series of arguments about global politics and, uh, you know, and, and culture and the arts and anything and everything and science. He was a, he was an electrical engineer by training and an avid kind of amateur astronomer and a lover of science. And so I definitely picked up that gene and have always been a science nerd, uh, as well as a politics wonk. And, uh, and so I think the, my love of, kind of argumentation, my love of probing different ideas, of hearing different points of view, a lot of that comes from him. And then the artistic side of of things, yes, uh, the comedic sort of performative side of things, uh, yes, but I think his main legacy in my life is this kind of like he was a he he had jewish parents and i think that i think it's a strong tradition in like in the jewish tradition of kind of being this this sort of seeker and questioner and lover of education and lover of like uh wondering why and asking questions there's a there's a great kind of 5000 year old tradition of of being obstinate question askers and i think that flowed through his his veins and it's probably the greatest uh, thing that he was able to bequeath to me that's beautiful, man. And um, two questions I have left for you. 
yeah. uh, before we go. These are questions that I ask everyone that comes on the show, regardless of the topic. The first one, um, I'm not sure how, how much of a you know avid reader you are, uh, but what are maybe two or three books that you've read in your life that have had a, a major impact on you? That's an easy one because it comes back to what I was just saying about my dad. When I was in my teens, I discovered... Carl Sagan and Richard Feynman and Richard Dawkins. In fact, uh, I've just had Richard Dawkins. I did a live event with Dawkins. Uh, he was out in Australia. He's in his 80s now. He's still just as brilliant as ever. Um, and uh, we've just dropped uh, the audio of, uh, of my conversation with Richard Dawkins at a sold-out event in, in Brisbane, uh, which I strongly encourage listeners to go and listen to if you haven't heard it yet. Yeah. Um, so Dawkins has a book called uh, Unweaving the Rainbow, which is sort of his most poetic book, and it's a defense of the scientific method, a defense of rationality and the defense of reason. It, the title comes from when scientists were working with prisms and separating light into its constituent wavelengths. Uh, they were able to create rainbows in a laboratory for the first time uh, by splitting white light into all, into all of its colors. And there was a, a religious leader who at the time was saying, oh, you know, will science stop at nothing? They're just despoiling the world and they're ruining the majesty and the mystery of the cosmos. Uh, you know, they're going so far as to unweave the rainbow as if this was a bad thing. And unweaving the rainbow is Richard Dawkins's retort to that and saying, why would you think that it's more magical to not understand something than it is to understand it? Like, it's incredible to understand it. It's much more majestic to understand it than to be wandering around, groping in the dark, uh, in ignorance of how it works. Um, there's another book by Carl Sagan called A Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark, which is incredibly prescient about the 21st century. Sagan was the greatest communicator of science and popularizer of science in the 20th century, especially in the 70s and 80s. And A Demon Haunted World is his prognostication about a future in which we're much more into pseudosciences, vaccine denialism, uh, witchcraft, crystals, uh, astrology, homeopathy, uh, and various other sort of feel-good quasi-sciences and have lost uh, our ability to come together and solve big problems because we've lost the ability to respect reason and rationality. That's a great book. Cosmos is his ultimate masterwork, Carl Sagan, which is a history of science, a very compelling history of, uh, of science. Um, Richard Feynman's um, various books, which are mostly, he didn't really write books, but he was the, you know, a great physicist. And he has some, there are some great compilations of some of his essays, which also changed my life in my teens. Um, and lastly, I recently read the novel of 2001, A Space Odyssey, for the first time by Arthur C. Clarke. He wrote it at the same time that he was writing the screenplay for the book. And uh, it's a great book. It's, it's, heaps, it's heaps less weird than the movie and much more comprehensible. <laughs> um, so I'll give that an honorary mention at the same time as I'm mentioning those other ones. Amazing. Some great recommendations there. The... Last question I have for you. Um, the answer to this could be, you know, as personal, profound as you want to make it. It could mean it could be anything. It could be your work. It could be, um, you know, your family. It could be anything. But right now, for Josh Sepps, what makes life worth living? Hmm. I mean, so much. Uh, well, life is not. You're not dead. So that's uh, one upside of being alive. <laughs> it's uh, the alternative. Yeah. The alternative is not is not that appealing to me. I've got to say. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. um, I, you, life wouldn't even have to be terribly good. I mean, look at the fact that people, even when they're in like Auschwitz, they still want to live. It's like you know, yeah. Yeah. even if things can be really bad, uh, you know, and you can still want to live. Um, what makes life worth living in a more positive sense, though? I mean. My partner, my kids, my job, my creativity, my health, my friends, my parents, my brother. Um, and in a more poetic sense, I guess, like the fact that I still have a sense of adventure and the fact that I'm still interested and intrigued by kind of inhaling as much of the world as I can. You know, I think that the time, the point at which I no longer am interested 
by things will be the point at which you might as well put a bullet in the in the head and uh, take me out back behind the barn. Because uh, yeah, I, I I still am deeply fascinated by things and want to learn more. I want to see more and want to understand more. So I guess that's that's my my prime driver that keeps me alive. Love it. Well, before we let these guys um, know where they can find more from yourself. I quickly actually just want to revive my old sign-off question from about two years ago, um, just because I think it might be prevalent to this conversation. You're a man that spent many, many, and many hours behind a microphone, um, you know, reaching a lot of people. If you were given the opportunity uh, to speak on a broadcast, say everybody in the world somehow was tuned into the same frequency, and Josh Sepps had the microphone, what would Josh Epps wanna wanna say what would Josh Epps' message to the world be? Um, you're a primate, scurrying around a rock, <laughs> spiraling around uh, a flaming orb on an outer spiral yeah. arm of a galaxy in a cosmos whose purpose we don't understand, regardless of what your faith leaders might claim. Uh, so have a sense of wonder and humility, and have a nice day. Amazing. Man, I love that answer. Where can these guys listening right now find more from yourself? Obviously, we've mentioned your podcast, but yes. where can they find you? Where can they connect? Look, that's the easiest place to go is Uncomfortable Conversations. Uh, if you Google that, Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Sepps, you'll find it. There's a Substack with with all kinds of premium bonus uh, content uh, if you choose to subscribe, or even if you don't want to pay for it, you still get a newsletter and some uh, some additional content. So if you Google Substack, Uncomfortable Conversations, uh, you can find me there. You can find me on Twitter, although I must say I'm less active on Twitter these days, so you might want to hit me up on Instagram where we'll be posting more and more video content that's related to the show. And if you're in uh, New South Wales in Australia, then of course you can listen to me on your local ABC radio station in the afternoons. Amazing. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an, an absolute pleasure and honour. You know, you've, you've been one of the biggest inspirations to me in this game. So it means a lot to me to finally speak to you. And um, it was definitely an enjoyable conversation. Thank you. That's very, very kind. And uh, it was it was lovely to, to meet you and to speak with you. And uh, hit me up if you're in Australia and we'll get a beer. 